Lord, we do want to lift your name on high because it is the only name by which we can be saved. And we want to claim that truth this morning. Lord, please open your word to us and help us know you better, help us understand you more. We pray this in your name. Amen. A while back in the BBC building in London, a sound technician left his booth for lunch, and as he did, he accidentally flipped a master switch that started a tape rolling over and over again throughout the entire building. And it was a tape that they'd recorded earlier of a homeless man singing this chant. And the chant went like this, Oh, the blood of Jesus, oh, the blood of Jesus, he's never failed me yet. One thing I know, he loves me so. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, he's never failed me yet, over and over and over for an hour. Well, when the sound technician got back, he noticed that all his co-workers had stopped working. And they were just staring transfixed at the speakers because they'd never heard such a thing before. I guess it wasn't part of the corporate culture at the BBC to hear that chant at lunch. That is the reaction I used to get, especially when I was on the Stanford campus. Whenever I would say that the blood of Jesus and only Jesus is what reconciles us to God. People would just stare at me, sort of dumbfounded. It was the strangest thing they ever heard. After all, we live in a very multicultural, egalitarian society with lots of different religions, lots of different worldviews. And what our culture wants to say is that all of those religions are basically the same. And they're all equally true. Which, of course, is impossible because they claim contradictory things. Some say there's one God, others many. Some say there's life after death, others say there isn't. But nevertheless, our culture wants to say they're really all the same, which just does violence to all of them. This winter, we're talking about the misconceptions people have of Jesus. And surely one of the biggest ones out there is this, that Jesus was a great guy, a good teacher, a holy man, but really just one of many ways to God. No better, no worse than the rest, and certainly not the only way. He was just... Sort of one of many ways in the supermarket of religious ideas. Now, the problem with that is that it's into the middle of our relativistic culture that Jesus says the following. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Wow. Way to be politically incorrect, Jesus. Don't you want to revise that a little bit? Didn't you mean to say you're one of many ways that people come to the Father? Oh, no. He says it over and over again. In Acts chapter 4, 12, it says, There is no other name in heaven by which people can be saved but Jesus. Now, that's not to say that other religions don't have things of great beauty and great wisdom and great value. They do. But what Jesus says and what I believe is that he is the only one who can reconcile us to God. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons. First is this. I think the reason that Jesus is the only way is because only Jesus offers us what we really need, and that's a Savior. The religion you choose will depend upon the problem you think you have. The religion you choose will depend upon the problem you think you have. Now, if you think your problem is you're not smart enough, you're going to choose a religion of enlightenment. If you think your problem is that you're not good enough, you're going to choose a religion that emphasizes good deeds. But... If you think that your problem is that you're not good enough and you're not smart enough, and furthermore, there's nothing that you, a flawed human being, can do on your own to be good enough and be smart enough to relate to a perfect, holy, omniscient God, you have but one alternative. 
And that's Jesus. Because what you're really saying is that you need a Savior. Because there's no way you can save yourself. And only Jesus offers us that. Gandhi wasn't a Christian, but he was a very wise and good man. And he said this. It is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him who, as I fully know, governs every breath of my life and whose offspring I am. And I know that it is the evil passions within me that keep me so far from him. And yet I cannot get away from them. That's a poignant statement. And I don't think that Gandhi is saying he needs enlightenment. And I don't think he's saying he needs a bunch of good deeds to perform. I think he's saying that there's a gulf between me and God, and that gulf is my brokenness, and I can't fix it on my own. Because like all of us, he is separated from God by what the Bible calls sin. I want to demonstrate this to you visually. I have a little visual aid here. Now, I didn't make this demonstration up, so if you don't like it, don't blame me. And if you like it, don't give me the credit. This pitcher of water is God. I know that might seem reductive to you, but go with the metaphor. (laughs) This glass is you. Again, I know you feel you're more complex than this, but please just bear with me on this. And this water is the pure and holy life that God meant to give us. And this is meant to be our relationship with him. This kind of intimate communion between God and us. God pours his pure holiness into us. We go back to God, back and forth in intimate, holy communion with our Lord. But there's a problem. This milk from my daughter's sippy cup (laughs) represents sin. Now let me define that word. All of those things that we do that isn't so good. The lustful thoughts, the lying, the ways we use people and hurt people, that's part of our life. And now there's a problem, right? I can't go back or I, I pollute the holiness of God. I'm separated. Now, our culture wants to say, ah, it's just a little bit of milk. What's the big deal? Can't God just kind of, well, no. Because one drop of this compromises the holiness and the purity of God. You know, and and even just a little bit will do it. Because you know what? The definition of pure is, well, (laughs) pure. (laughs) So there's a problem. What are you going to do? Well, here's the solution. A substitute. A sacrifice. Pour the sin out on him. Jesus, and now I am free to go back into holy, intimate communion with God. By substituting a sacrifice, God stays pure and holy, but he can also be merciful, and he stays a God that we can respect. You know, some people say, well, why couldn't God just sort of have just forgotten about sin, just kind of said, oh, that's all right, don't worry about it. Well, is that a God that you can respect? A God who would just wink at all the ways we hurt people and devastate other people? That's not a God you can respect. That's not a God of justice. That's not even a loving God because he just lets sin run rampant. Only in Jesus can justice, holiness, and mercy go together. And that makes Jesus the only way. A while back, I was in San Francisco with a group of people and we were ministering to teenage male prostitutes on the street. And that is about as bleak a life as you can imagine. And one of them, named Derek, told us his story. And he told us all the ways that he had humiliated himself for money, just to get some drugs. And as he would talk to us, he kept saying over and over again, I'm boring you, aren't I? I'm boring, aren't I? And I kept thinking, bored was not what was coming to mind. And then he'd say, I want to be good, but I can't. My life, the drugs, I I just can't. And I realized he didn't mean that he was afraid he was boring us. 
He felt we thought he was disgusting. Now, I don't think Derek needs enlightenment. He knows a lot already. And I don't think he needs a list of good deeds to go do, because I don't think all the good deeds in the world are going to make him feel better about himself as deep as his hurts go. I think he needs a savior. I think he needs Jesus who takes all the impurity on him so that Derek can go and be in communion with the Holy God. Jesus who pays every price that Derek knows needs to be paid for what he has done and for what has been done to him. Jesus who settles every score. Jesus who offers him unconditional love and backs it up by dying for him on the cross. Jesus is the only way because he solves our real problem and that's sin. The second reason I think Jesus is the only way is because Jesus is the only one to offer us a personal relationship with God. You know, other religious figures said, I know the way, or I have the way, but only Jesus says, I am the way. That is, he doesn't offer us a list of propositions or rules or religion, he offers us a relationship. And you'll notice in this story that Thomas asks, asks a very sort of propositional question. How can we know the way? It's a very educated question. It's a very intellectual question. Thomas was Presbyterian. <laughs> Jesus gives him a relational answer. I am the way. Jesus offers a relationship, which is what we really need anyway. Because finally, we are relational beings more than we are propositional or ethical beings. A couple of years ago when I was teaching, I overheard a conversation between a student and a professor in the English department. Stanford. And the student had come complaining and in tears, actually, about his low grade. But as the conversation went on, it, it turned out there were a lot of other things bugging the student. He was feeling like a failure. He was feeling worthless. And mostly he was feeling guilty because he had really hurt a lot of people in his life. And the professor was doing absolutely no good at all. The professor kept saying things like, have you read Nietzsche on this subject? Surely you know what Foucault would say. No, what would Foucault say? Enlighten me. It was doing no good. Foucault, Nietzsche, the student didn't need propositions or philosophy. He needed something a little more personal. He needed a relationship. When we feel guilty because of something we've done. When we wonder whether or not we matter beyond our achievements. When we feel alone or abandoned. We don't need rules. We don't need rituals. We don't need religion. We need someone to say, I forgive you. I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. We don't need something we need someone. And that's why Jesus is the only way, because he offers us a relationship to God, with God rather than a pathway to him. The third reason I think Jesus is the only way is because only Jesus conquered death. The Bible affirms that Jesus was raised from the dead. And when I was here in November, I, I shared a lot of reasons with you why I think that's true. And I don't have time to rehearse them now. If you want, I'll, I'll go over it with you later. But if that's true, if Jesus really rose from the dead, you've got to say this. That's unique. Never been done before. And I think it backs up his claim that he is the one and only Son of God, our only true Savior. Only Jesus offers us what we really need, which is a Savior. Only Jesus gives us a relationship with God. And only Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Now, I could say a lot more. I could you know, talk about how Jesus is the only way because in him God comes to us rather than us go to God, which just makes sense because the finite can't get to the infinite. The infinite has to come to the finite. And I could go on and on and on, but who wants to hear a preacher go on and on and on? So the bottom line is this. Only Jesus.
saves. Now, that raises a big question, and you're probably asking it somewhere along the line, and it's this. Well, if that's true, well, then what about people who never hear of Jesus? What about the Buddhist in China who never gets to hear the story? Is, is he going to go to hell just because of a fluke of geography? Now, I could say a lot about that, but here's my short answer. I affirm what I know, and I don't affirm what I don't know. Here's what I know. God is loving. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. Jesus is the only way. Somehow, those three things go together. I don't, I don't know how. I know this, though, that on Judgment Day, in marginal cases, God's not going to be looking at me for my opinion. Hey, Dudley, what do you think? In, out. Not going to be up to me. We know that people in the Old Testament were saved by the God that had been revealed to them. Abraham had never heard the name Jesus, and yet Romans 4 says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what did Abraham believe about God? Just that there was some God out there? No, it was more specific than that. As they're going up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, and Isaac says, where's the ram for the sacrifice? Abraham says what? God himself will provide the sacrifice. In other words, Abraham has some faith that God is going to have to provide the sacrifice, that if he's going to be saved, it's going to be God that does it, which God does 2,000 years later in Jesus. It's just that Abraham didn't know his name yet. He believed in the necessity of Jesus, the function of Jesus, without knowing his name. You see, what puts us in right relationship with God isn't our great Christian theology. It's not what we know. It's not even our good deeds. Christianity saves nobody. Only Jesus saves. And how much of him do you have to know before you're saved? I don't know. I don't know. What reconciles us to God is our dim admission somewhere that we can't save ourselves and that God's going to have to do it. And wherever people respond to that truth, I believe God credits that to them as righteousness based on what Christ has done. Now, that's just my opinion. I don't know. That's the bottom line. I don't know. But I do know this. Christianity is not particular about who gets saved. It is only particular about who does the saving. And that's Jesus. And wherever people are saved, they are saved based on what Jesus has done on the cross rather than what they have done. And that's why Jesus being the only way isn't exclusive. It's the opposite. It is the most inclusive way to God there can possibly be. Because, you see, you don't have to be born into the right caste. You don't have to perform a lot of rituals or sacrifices. You don't have to make a certain number of pilgrimages. You don't even have to be good. All you need to do is know Jesus and know you need him. And that's something that everyone can do. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that is such good news because, you see, I'm not a good person. I'm a bad person. And I'm a pastor. So think how depressing that is for everyone else. <laughs> I hurt people. I lie. I lust. I use people. And all of that makes me feel unlovable, and it makes me feel ashamed of myself, and it makes me feel that I have to make up for all those failures somehow. I have to, by achieving more, or, or, or by doing a lot of good deeds, or by being super religious, to cover over all my flaws. But how much of that is enough? How much achievement is enough? How much religion is enough to make me look good, even though I'm bad? How much is enough? The good news of Jesus is God himself provides the sacrifice and no more striving is necessary on my part. A while back, I was trying to explain Christianity to a student and I was doing a very bad job of it. 
And for reasons I still don't understand, I, I started comparing Christianity to ancient religions. And I said, you know, in ancient religions, they used to have to sacrifice goats and bulls to cover over their sin and sort of make themselves feel better about themselves and atone for themselves. And, you know, the problem was you had to keep doing that. And, and Jesus is once and for all. And the student just looked at me. Goats? Bulls? This is the 21st century. Where are we going with this, Dudley? So finally I said, okay, forget about the goats and bulls. That's not working. We don't do that. But here's what we do. We try to go to the best schools to impress everybody. We try to make a pile of money to prove to the world our net worth. We try to do a lot of good deeds to cover over all our bad deeds. We try to rack up a lot of accomplishments to compensate for all of our failures. And all of that is like so many goats and so many bulls sacrificed on the altar of our lives as a way of saying, don't look at my mistakes, look at my accomplishments. Doesn't this make up for all my failures? Don't you love me? Don't you want me? Won't you accept me now? And the great thing about Jesus is, once and for all, every price is paid. Every sin accounted for, and we are made right with God forever. And if ever we needed proof that we are loved, the nails in his hands and the wounds in his feet show us how much he loves us. When I got done with that, he sort of looked around and said, do you have a piece of paper? And I said, no. And he went and got a pen and a paper and he came back and he said, okay, now, tell me about the goats and bulls again, because that was really good. (laughs) And it is good. It's good news. What are you sacrificing to prove yourself worthy? How are you trying to make up for all your failures? How are you trying to atone for your own sin? How are you afraid and lonely and feeling abandoned? Only Jesus can solve that because only Jesus offers us what we really need, which is a savior. Only Jesus gives us a relationship with God and only Jesus proves how much we're loved by dying for us when he did not have to. And all we have to do is say yes to Jesus and make him our leader and the forgiver of our sins. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It's never failed me yet. One thing I know, he loves me so. The blood of Jesus. It's never failed me yet. Lord Jesus, in the words of the old hymn, should our good works overflow... Should our zeal no respite know, that for sin could not atone. You must save, and you alone. In our hands, no price we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. You are the only one, Lord, that we want to stand on. All other ground is sinking sand, and so we turn our whole lives over to you. And we ask that you lead and will follow. Thank you for saving us. We pray this in your name. Amen.